Hello, my name is Scott Bradley and this is Scott Squad Podcast. Today I'm joined by ex-professional footballer and founder of the Red Card Gambling Support Project, Tony Kelly. We discuss how Tony first got involved with gambling, when it started to spiral out of control, when he realised he had a gambling addiction, having his car and house repossessed, filing for bankruptcy, his recovery and finding his faith again, all this and so much more. Enjoy the show. So Tony, we'll go right to the start. And uh, you left high school at the age of 16 years old to pursue your football career. Who was the club that signed you? So I signed for Bristol City when I uh, left school in Coventry. So that was on, a, well, they, they call it scholars now, but obviously apprentice. Um, yeah, two-year apprenticeship with Bristol City with Terry Cooper, I think old ex-leads in England. Um, yeah, and obviously moving home from Coventry, like any young person, that can be hard. Uh, in terms of ad- adapting to you know a new city and moving away from friends etc so yeah 16 is when it all started mm. and what was life like growing up in Coventry well um initially in the in the uh, late 70s and 80s there was a lot of uh, racism around um so that was difficult but obviously you know um working my way through that uh, there wasn't a lot of employment about, you know, if if you was, you know, if you was older than me, say 18, 19, 20, you were skilled, there would, obviously the car industry was was huge. Um, but my my passion really, you know, I did, I did do well at school in terms of exams and all that, but my passion was always about wanting to be a footballer. And that came from two things, really. One from um, growing up 74 when I was eight years old and, and the Brazilian team, etc. That's when I sort of fell in love with football. Um, and then basically my older brother, who's now six, seven years, seven years older than me, Errington Kelly, he um, was the first in the family to turn professional. So at the time when I was at Bristol City, he was at Bristol Rovers as a pro um, and then obviously went on to other clubs. But he sort of was the inspiration in terms of when I used to watch him down at Eastville, um, you know, I, I want to be a professional footballer, so, you know, following his footsteps. So that was a sort of driving force, not just for me, but me and my twin brother, because we went to Bristol City as uh, as twins. Mm. And so, see, growing up, were you a Coventry fan? Yeah, I was a Coventry fan. It's, it's, it's a bit strange, my growing up in terms of who I loved, because I was actually a- absolutely crazy about Man United from the age of eight. And and going, I'm older than I look, I'm now 50 years later. Well, I will be tomorrow, actually. I will be tomorrow, Valentine's Day, 58 tomorrow. Um, but, you know, when I look back, when I was eight years old, I was Man United crazy. So I can now, if we think about the 77 for Cup final, the 79 football on the Cup final against Arsenal and that, I can name straight off the, the team in terms of, you know, Gary Bailey and, you know, so, uh, Jimmy Nicola right back and Martin Buchan and Gordon McQueen, Sandra Arms and Arthur Albertson left back, Lou McCary, Sam McElroy, Gordon Nell, Steve Coppel, and then you got um, Jimmy Greenough and Joe Jordan up front and Stuart Pearson. So that's just stayed with me. Every anyone, any any time anyone asks me about Man United, it just reels off. It's very strange. I've been stuck with me all these years. I can just name that squad just like that. Yet I'm not a Man United fan now. You know, that that grew that went away when, when I was young. So when I was I got 16 all that. Yes, I was more more about Coventry and you know Mick Ferguson and Gary Thompson and the Highfield Road and all that stuff. So yeah, a Coventry fan. And then you were the youngest player at the time to make a first-team debut for Bristol City. That must have been a proud moment for yourself and the family. Yeah. Um, came as a little bit little bit of a shock. I remember um, 
train and then Terry Cooper just we ever used to have the team the squad up on the on the notice board then days and then he'd say oh you know you're traveling tomorrow uh to Hartlepool United and um yeah it was a to be honest it was a little bit nerve-wracking but yeah made the debut 16 244 days mm-hmm. obviously the youngest player to play for us was his first scene at the time I think the record was lasted 20 years uh yeah but it was really proud moment for for me and my family um the fact that you know I'm actually gonna make professional day so young uh yeah and so life did start really well in terms of my my development it developed quite quickly in terms of uh, as, as a player yeah so that was really exciting yeah yeah and see during your time at Bristol City who were some of the people that helped you out who are some of the people that you looked up to um I'd say people like there's there's a few legends like Jerry Gow and Tom Ritchie these are these are players when Bristol City I've, I've actually recently uh looked at the Bristol City documentary from the 80s where they actually were going out of business um struggling for money had to sell all their best players so those kind of players the Tom Riches and the Jerry Gows of this world um from from the 70s and 80s you know they were senior pros Terry Boyle ex-carded in Wales uh so there were certain players that I looked up to that I admired um and I think that even in a good way and a bad way but it sort of got put me on on the sort of wrong path even though I looked up to them I wanted to be like them and they'd drive up in their new cars and training and I remember um we had a guy called Johnny Conimo and he was only 20 um but he was in the first team regular in midfield great player but he used to drive into training in his yellow TR7 and, I, and he used to look look like and just think yeah that could be me soon and all that so my attitude towards football um wasn't the best it was it was the wrong type of attitude instead of thinking you know you've got time you've got another 18 months yet you know get your head down you're not a pro yet you got a lot of work ahead of you uh, I I wanted to run before I could walk basically so I you know you, you talk about the senior players who are locked up to yes I locked up to them but I also wanted to follow and be like them and so I ended up doing silly things like going nightclubbing with them you know during the week and coming out at three o'clock in the morning to the into the lodgings so those are the kind of things that, that set me back a bit. Yeah, because obviously uh, during that time, Tony, oh, the drinking culture was very heavy back in those yeah. days. And obviously, it's much more different now. But see, obviously, when you first signed, if a Bristol City, did you go into it like with the mindset of like, okay, I'm going to try and get my head down? But see, because you had some of those bad influences, like with the drinking culture and all that kind of stuff, do you feel as though that really hindered your progress? Yeah, I, I just, I just think that I didn't, I didn't have the right mental attitude uh yes there was a lot of drinking culture yes a lot of nightclubbing yeah sometimes you might even go out on a thursday night wasn't scrutinized as much as it is now 48 hours before a game uh so i'd end up in in nightclubs till three in the morning with senior players um yes and there was a lot of heavy heavy drinking the one thing the one thing this will come on to later but the one thing that i don't as a 16 year old um that i don't actually recall what was gambling funnily enough but as we come on to it into my later career, we'll come on to that. Uh, but yeah, I don't actually remember gambling. Obviously, gambling was going on in the in the early eighties, late seventies, early eighties. Of course, it was. Um, but yeah, that doesn't stick out. But the drinking side of things and going down the pub after training—that was a regular thing for the players. Um, but as I said, I wanted to, um, you know, sort of, you know, align with them and be be like them. And you know, yes, those they they influenced me unintentionally influenced me in a in a in a wrong way, really. Yeah. Yeah, and what was the reason why you got released from Bristol City? It was quite straightforward, really. I, I played, I think I had eight appearances from 16 to 17. 
Um, I remember scoring the first goal at Hereford away, um, so everything was going great. But then the two the two things well, yeah, the, the two things that really stood out really in terms of attitude wise was was obviously going out club. Now staying in the lodgings is connected to the football club. Uh, I remember Rose, lovely lady, but I was staying with three other players. But obviously, part of their job is to report back to the club in terms of you know uh, apprentices' behaviour, etc. So I was doing mad things, like sneaking girls in at three in the morning, just just things that getting carried away with the old adulation and the whole glamour of being, you know, not even a professional but being in that environment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, and then obviously slacking off at training, thinking I've made it. So the whole attitude side of of myself and my game was wasn't right. I had the ability, um, I had the potential, and it's like a lot of young players have been like drop out of the game. Uh, so. Yeah, that was the reason. I remember being called in and I remember um, Clive Middlemass, who's Terry's assistant, who's passed away now, Clive Middlemass, well, they both passed away. Is, um, and he was just telling me that, he goes, Tony, you, you will be a professional footballer, but when you sorted your head out. Um, and to be fair, those words rang true. And, you know, six years later, um, the opportunity came. Mm-hmm. And what was it like going from Bristol City to non-league? Like, that must have been a big difference. Yeah, it was uh I'd I'd had good good training etc. I was fit, um, and then I came back to Coventry. Uh, I think the first club I went to was the Eton Borough with Graham Carr, and then I went to uh, Stratford Town. And going back into well not back into but going to the non-league scene was a bit of an eye opener. Um, getting I'm only 17, 17 and a half, and I'm getting getting kicked all over the place. This is men's football now proper, and um, yeah, I, I, I did. Yeah, after after the initial sort of uh, getting used to it, I did, you know, flow and, and sort of uh, done really well within the non-league circuit. The name was getting about a bit, went on a couple of trials. Um, and then it was then it was just a question of, you know, do I stay in Coventry um, and just, you know, try and develop my career at one of the non-league, or whether it's Lillian Borough, whether it's Bedford United, whoever it is. But I decided to move to London at, at 18. Um, and that's when, you know, I suppose, in my, in my opinion, that's in about 18 when I moved to moved to London and joined Dulwich Hamlet. That's when my sort of career was really sort of starting to take off and I was really developing well, playing with, you know, in a top long league, like the like Eastern League, um, with Dulwich Hamlet. And they had players like Alan Pardew and Andy Gray, ex, ex, went on to obviously Palace and all that, because Dulwich Hamlet was connected to, more or less connected to um, Crystal Palace, South East London. So scouts were down there all the time. And I'd seen one or two players go off to turn pro from our club. Um, so it was a question of, you know what, this is the environment. I'm at a decent non-league level. Scouts are going to come into games. Um, so it's just a question of, you know, if I continue to develop and play well. And it was only Tuesday and Thursday night trainings. That was fine. Got a job. So it's a question of fingers crossed and hoping that someone's going to spot me. Mm. See, when you were playing in uh, non-league, would you say that was when you really started to get into gambling? Mm. That was it. That's exactly when it all started because when I moved to London and signed for Dulwich Hamlet, my sister's flat was only two minutes away. It was living with my sister. Um, and then Dulwich Hamlet Football Club was literally opposite, was a mecca bookmakers. Um, and, we, and we talk today about why some people gamble, lots of different reasons why people start gambling. You know, these days it could be cost of living, it could be trauma, it could be coping mechanisms, all kinds of different reasons. Um and mine was one of the one of those other reasons, which is a bit of peer pressure. So I was really, really fairly quiet and shy as a 17, 18 year old. 
And I come into London, it was the big lights, this is the big city. It's not like now, completely different now. You know, London is London, everyone goes every day. But back then, moving from Comptry, all my mates were saying, oh God, you know, Tony's moving to London. And uh, so you're hearing all these cockney voices in the dressing room and the banter, and they always say that you've got to have strong mental strength to be in a, in a, in a dressing room in a football uh, football environment. Um, so, yeah, I um, started to, you know, join in with the lads that went over to Mecca Bookmakers to put their £5 or, or whatever it was, accumulators on. Um, and that was my way of fitting in, having a sense of belonging, being with the clique, so to speak. Um, and yeah, that was my way. And I thought of joining with them. They were, they were the older senior, senior players, 21, 22, 23. And I thought of joining with these guys, yeah, just makes me feel more comfortable, more confident. And I remember the first bet was five aways. I remember the red and green coupons, five aways, yeah. Um, and that's how I sort of started with the football. Football, I say initially started with the football gambling. And they talk me through the big opportunity that you had to sign for Stoke City at the age of 22 when they were in the second division. Yeah, that was um, incredible, really, because we were playing. I went from Dulwich Hamlet to uh, Chesant in Hertfordshire. Then to Enfield Town in Hertfordshire, well, in Enfield, and then from Enfield to St Albans in Hertfordshire. Still playing in the same level, Isman League, Ryman League. And uh, we played Stevenage Borough. I'll never forget it. Stevenage Borough on a Tuesday night. Wet, horrible, windy Tuesday night. And Stevenage were obviously the league club now, but back then they weren't. Uh, and we won 3-1. And my partner striker, who I speak to now today, um, Lance Pedler, he scored... Um, a hat trick, and so after the game, um, I remember my manager saying to me that, "Oh, you know, um, before the game, sorry, my manager saying that Stoke, you know, someone from Stoke is down today." So I didn't, I didn't, you know, really think about it too much. Yes, I'm a little bit nervous and that, but I didn't really think about it too much. I thought I played okay. I didn't think we played brilliant. Um, and then I was surprised when uh, the manager said that someone's going to call you tomorrow. So the next morning, I had a phone call from Graham Padden first, who was a uh, He's ex-West Ham Norwich, but, but he was Alan Ball's assistant. And uh, he said, we want you to come down um, for a trial. Now, the only reason, I was oohing and ahhing about coming down for a trial. And the only reason I was, you know, not committing to coming down to for a trial is because I'd already been on two trials um, previously within the last three months to Watford and Southampton. So I was getting a little bit peed off about going for trial. So... I said, oh, well, I've been to Watford, I've been to Southampton. Uh, we got, the deal got messed up with Southampton with the, with the uh, price, the transfer fee. So I said, oh, you know, but, you know, I don't really want to come down for a trial. So he said, oh, let me speak to Alan. So then Alan Ball called back uh, and said, well, come down. We'll talk about a two-year contract. I thought, wow. And then I thought, that'd be okay. So I told the missus um, that I'm going down to Stoke to talk about contract. Obviously, she, she was in her own job and we lived in a flat in Enfield. And so it was, it was a case of, my life's going to completely change, you know, if this goes through. Um, and I remember going down to Victoria Ground, uh, me and Graham Allen Ball, chairman. I, I, ironically, <laughs> no, the reason why I'm the reason why I'm saying ironically, the chairman, Peter Coates. You know who they are. Yeah. So. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so that was ironic. Um, and uh, so they they offered me the contract, the sign and on fee. I think it was twenty grand. And then. Uh, I remember Alan Ball taking me onto the pitch and saying, you're you're now in the big time. Remember those words? Because you're now in the big time. So I thought, well, this is it. And that's to tell the family, obviously, everyone's everyone's you know, pleased and pleased and proud. Um, and I think, yeah, it took a few days. But the, 
the one crazy thing about that, I think I, I came on the Monday for start training. Um, packed all my stuff up from the Wednesday, came on the Monday. And then on the Saturday, I was playing in the Potteries Derby in front of 24,000 at uh, Vale Park. Mm-hmm. And see, when you were at Stoke, Tony, would you say that's when your gambling started to spiral out of control, where when you were playing non-league, it was just putting on coupons every week, and then when you were playing for Stoke City, I, I think you were going to casinos and a regular yeah. places. Can you tell me uh, stuff about that? Yeah, so the, the, with the non-league football, from 18 to nearly 22, um, it was all about... Um, Football, football coupons, and and I got I got into horse racing because my missus used to work in the bookers, so I got into the horse racing and bookers. Now I, I didn't have I wouldn't say I had a major problem in those three four years, uh, but it was a mini problem. So I was I was gambling more regularly, um, obviously doing all different kinds of bets. Obviously when I got into the horse racing, I knew about place spots and all that kind of stuff. So it, it was slowly escalated. There was times where I would spend uh, more money than I could afford. So I'd have to, uh, you might have to get a sub at work. I was working for Eastern Electricity Board at that time and then went on to be a postman. Uh, so there was a few money issues, accumulated one or two little debts. So it was starting, it was starting to become a problem by the time I signed for Stoke. And then when I signed for Stoke, um, yeah, I suppose you could say that because obviously the more money, the more income, the more risks and the bigger the bets, those kind of things started, yeah, to come into play. Uh, but regardless of whether it was a football or whether I stayed as a postman, it would have escalated anyway because I was getting into that, you know, cycle of being a compulsive gambler. So, yeah, the the one I got when I got to Stoke, obviously the sign on fee, all of a sudden I'm on a big wage, and so yeah, uh, the, uh, the the bets got bigger, uh, and obviously the losses get bigger, uh, and then and then you know. Probably the, not probably, but the biggest downfall in terms of my losses in terms of gambling was the casino because I was then introduced to the casino, which I'd never been to before, and then uh, got heavily, you know, involved in the casinos on a regular, regular basis. Mm. Did anyone ever pull you aside and say, Tony, I think your gambling's getting a bit of a, a bit out of control here, or was it just like the norm back then, but it's like, like people thought, oh, that's it's just harmless, just harmless, harmless coupons, harmless, yeah. Like, bit of fun at the casino but did anyone ever pull you aside and say something to you about it no and there's a couple of things about that you know because in terms of gambling culture within football you know it's always been that that way right back to the Rodney Martin and George Best days it's always been that way and it was apparent to me once I signed for Stoke you know what what made it apparent to me is the fact that there were six or seven lads that would always um, have a bet before say for instance before an away game you get to the ground to get on the coach and you go in the book as quickly put your football bets on six or seven of us and then what made it really stark was the was the was the card scores on the coaches that's when it really brought home to me, like, this this is just normal you know this is no big deal yet. and to to prove a point in terms of normality you know we had the chairman and the directors and the managers joining in with us uh, on, on some occasions so you can imagine that today, players gambling with directors, etc. You just be crazy, it wouldn't happen. But that's how it was back then. And so the card schools, you know, people did lose a lot of money. I lost a lot of money during those card schools, and it it would continue at the hotel. So the five or six lads would say, you know, my room, so and so, whatever, three card brag. So it's it's just the, the how it was back then, and the, the culture of football and gambling went together. Mm-hmm. And no one, no one ever pulled me aside, and I think. It's all right saying no one ever pulled me aside um, because we hide it well. 
but also we, we are in denial. So I'm not going to be really telling anybody, uh, not even my closest friends or family really knew um, the depths or the amount of money that I was losing or the, the, the troubles I was I was facing. No one really knew because that's what we do. We, we talk a lot today about shame and stigma. And so, yeah, there's no way I'm going to be telling people that this is happening. Yeah. Yeah. So see when you'd win a bet, you would get that that big thrill, and then you would be like, "Okay, I'll put another one on because I want to keep the the buzz going." Is that what it was like? Yeah, and I think that's the, that's the same for any gambler. They say that we can't we can't get enough. You know, I, I could be up in the casino, farm the quid, thousand pound. I could be up, but you know that adrenaline rush and that dopamine rush just makes you want more and more. So you're, you know, we talk about the dopamine rush in terms of you know doing something uh, pleasurable that we like. You can't, you can't stop them. You want more. So if you, even though it was five hundred, six hundred quid or whatever, I'd still want more. And then eventually you'd lose it, and then you end up, you know, um, you know, being being in deficit. Mm. So yeah, the buzz is amazing. And I think in terms of the ambience and the the, the whole design of the casinos and all that, it was free food then, back then free sandwiches. You know, it was, you know, you felt. It, it was it was a night nice, as a gambler. It was a nice place to. I know it sounds crazy. It was a nice place to be. You know, comfortable. You might have a couple of mates with you. Probably one or two girls in there. You got your drink. You got your food. Everything is just designed and geared for you to go and sit there for hours and hours and hours. Mm-hmm. And then you were saying as well, like you were in denial for a good while. But at what moment did you realise, Tony? Right, I've got a serious problem here. Um, there's times where I thought. Uh, because one or two things happened during during the journey, during a, like with many people during a gambling addiction journey, things things happen. Uh, like for instance, getting the car repossessed. I remember I used to um, because I, I'm now getting to a point where I've accumulated a lot of debt, regardless of what what, what ways I've accumulated a lot of debt. And so I'll do things like uh, remember with the, with the car company, I'll park it two or three streets away, uh, knowing that you know I've got the letter saying that the car's going to be repossessed. And just hoping that they don't find it, but you know they, they have their, their ways of finding it. So things like that, um, not running out of money one week and not being able to go training. So I remember knocking on um, Lou Macari's door and asking for a sub from from Diane, the receptionist. And and I think back to that time, and I think back to possibly, well, maybe that question might be asked today in certain sectors. But could Lou Mark Lou Macari asked me? You know, have you got a problem, Tony? Is there an issue? Why do you need, why are you running out of money? But obviously he didn't, and I don't lay, lay no blame on anyone's door. But, you know, maybe today that question might be asked, um, you know, because here I am as a professional footballer, earning X amount of money, asking for a sub. So those kind of things. And So in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, I know I've got a problem. Uh, but you always think, as a gambler, and as you're accumulating this debt, and you're going through these issues, you always think of the big win. You always think that one big win's going to clear everything and then, you know, I'll be fine. And that's what you sort of strive for. That's why I say about the lo- the losses get bigger because the outlays get bigger. Mm. And uh, obviously you were saying that uh, your cars, you got cars uh, repossessed in uh, your house as well. And yeah. you filed for bankruptcy as well. I think it was £192,000. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean... Crazy, yeah. That's, yeah, that's what I was saying. about in terms of, you know, the eight years as a pro, so I would lost six, seven years to the game because obviously I was finished with football at 30, late in Orient being my last club. Um, and so when I finished football, I had all this debt. But obviously, I'm now 
a compulsive, I'm a gambling addict now and I haven't sought help or anything like that. So when I leave football and go into the workplace, which was network rail for the next 10 years, I'm, I'm a heavily gambling addict and still trying to get out of debt and still having all these um, debts to check people chasing me and all that kind of CCJs piling up, defaults piling up. So it's a question of, you know, there wasn't a time where I thought, you know, I've got to do something. I've got to. I've got to go and see some support, get some help, and all that. I I just kept on gambling, kept on gambling. You know, it's a bog. It's a drug. It really, really grips you, and you just can't, can't stop. That's why I said you obviously need professional help to stop. So I accumulated all the debt, and it, and it wasn't until 2012 when um, myself and my sister were talking about um, certain snippets coming out in the press with ex-footballers gambling. I remember Michael Chopper was one of them. And so she said, oh, you should write a book. And that was the sort of turning point when I, you know, you talk about telling people, but going public uh, with the book in 2013, Red Card. Um, and on the back of that book came the media stuff. So, you know, the book came out in 2014. Uh, and at the same time, all the media stuff came out. And that's when I went public on BBC Breakfast to tell my story. Now, I think that's the turning point because... The bankruptcy 2010, yes, it, it wiped out my £192,000 debt, but obviously it leaves a legacy and leaves long-term impact in terms of, you know, trying to get into the car or trying to get a phone contract or trying to get a rental contract because it stays in your credit for over six years. So I had that to deal with. Um, but, yeah, once I went public and the and the realisation that I wasn't alone, I think that was the biggest thing. The feedback that came back from all kinds of people um, that's when I thought, wow, this gambling addiction is bigger than I thought. And, and so that's when that's when I thought, right, okay, here's an opportunity. Um, you know, everybody knows now. So that that monkey's off my shoulder. Family and friends, everybody knows everything now. Um, the, the, the nation knows. So I thought, wow, this is an opportunity. I've come clean. I've got up and back. Uh, I've acknowledged it. I've accepted it. Now what's the next step? And um because I've obviously got rid of that debt uh, and I couldn't get credit anyway because for the next six years. So I thought, right, okay, it's an opportunity. So um, that's when we decided to set up something um, and not coming from business background. My sister would help me and she said, look, you can incorporate an organisation, you can set up something. Um, and that's what I decided to do. So that was the start of the recovery. Uh, but there was something that happened. I don't know if you've touched upon the faith thing. There was something that happened in, in the same year as the bankruptcy, 2009 stroke 10. Uh, and this is, it's part of my recovery now, but at the time, I didn't realise how much part of my recovery it would become. Um, and that was when I was working for Network Rail, because um, I worked for Network Rail from 2000 to 2010. So um, I was a signalman, work, working at Signal Box in Dollars Hill, North London, and I had a knock on the door on a Sunday afternoon, uh, Worked alone on a rural part of the track, um, just, you know, setting up routes for freight trains. And uh, I had a knock on this door, didn't recognise him, um, asked for his ID, and he said he was the network rail chaplain. Now, obviously, I've been there 10 years, and I've never, ever had a visit from a network rail chaplain in 10 years. So I said to him, well, that's, that's a first, that's strange. And he just said, well, your signal box has come up as a, a regional visit. So showed me his ID and then he had a brand new Bible with him and came into the signal box. Um, we sat down. This was the time the bank was just finishing. They were just breaking up with the missus of 20 years. 
So I mean, life, life was all over the place. Um, and we sat down and we talked for about two hours. He, he wrote a prayer out, which I've got today, with Salvation Prayer, I've still got that. Um, and, the, and the reason why I say I didn't realise at the time how much part of my recovery would be is because when he left, it wasn't a case of my life's going to change and everything's going to be rosy and all that. It wasn't like that. But it did make me feel a bit different. It did make me regain my Christianity, my faith. It did make me, uh, you know, because I had a brand new Bible, so I read, started to read scriptures, and it did make me feel like there's a little bit of hope here. So you can imagine, you know, four years later, I start to write this book. So how I wrote a book, a book I don't know, because, you know, I wouldn't know where to start, but I wrote it with a biro and A4 paper. So no ghostwriting, no computers, no laptops, no nothing. And I had this manuscript after 18 months that was up here. Um, and I thought to myself, when I told my sister that I finished, I thought, wow, how, how did I actually, because I couldn't stop writing for 18 months. I couldn't stop writing. And so now I look back to that that meeting with, with the chaplain and how things were put in place for me to start on a new pathway. And the book was the first thing. Uh, so it's just, you know, strange how, how my in my opinion, how my Christian face has, has helped me recover. And, and then as we go on now, as we get towards the end of the story, I'll tell you more about how it's a, it's a big part of my life now, a big part of my recovery. Yeah, and just I just want to touch on this as well, Tony. See your gambling addiction. How much have I told did it take on uh, your ex, uh, ex-missies, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, that was a big time. We talk a lot today in the work that I do today in terms of, you know, affected others and people that's impacted. And she was really, really impacted a lot, um, you know, so much so that, you know, that there was times where I might be in the book as I'm supposed to be coming home for dinner. I'll come home two or three hours late, having lost money. I'll be sent out shopping, spent the money. We, we had a daughter together. Um, and obviously, you know, there were there were certain times where she was neglected. Um, so the, the whole dynamics of our little mini family, Savannah and Sandra and myself, were massively impacted. I... I remember going to William Hill, I was picking up Savannah, she, she was nine at the time from school, and I was going uh, back home to, to the house, and uh, it was midweek, obviously, you know, lots of football matches on, and I said to Savannah, just hold on two minutes, I'm just popping into a quick bet, I mean, this is in William Hill, you know, to this day, I've said it on many platforms, to this day, I don't know how long I was in that William Hill shop for, but I know that I'll be putting on lots of the bets. So, you know, you're leaving a nine-year-old daughter outside of a bookies, you know, for God knows 20 minutes. And those are the kind of things that when you're in the zone, that, you you know, you just do your own thing and you don't care about anybody, basically. And that's how it was with, with my ex-partner, Sandra, letting her down time and time again. There's only so many lies you can tell and there's only so many times you can de- deceive someone and be deceitful, which is what we do as gamblers. And that's how... Um, she was heavily impacted by that and until eventually there came a time where the trust completely goes um you know so there's no there's no real future because there's no trust and because there's the finances are gone so yeah we, and we, it's funny because today we're best friends and she's been for everything with me so she you know she understands the journey she understands that it, it's an addiction it's an illness uh, but, at the, but at the time going through with me yeah, it wasn't pleasant for her and it wasn't pleasant for my daughter she got older. Mm-hmm. Would you say the counselling and your faith uh, saved your life, Tony? I said the two things were 
the faith, the because of the faith, uh, I'll just elaborate on in a minute. But the counselling, I went counselling for six weeks. I remember it was a private counsellor house, and I remember it wasn't just about the gambling. That's that's the one thing that sticks out to me when I'm sitting down with this lady. I think her name's Karen, and sitting down. But it was about questions like, where do you want to be in five years' time? You know, hope, future, all those kind of things. Building relationship with your partner, your daughter, all these things, and looking ahead. It was, so that's what the counselling was about. It wasn't directly about the gambling addiction. The gambling addiction, some people, as we know, go to GA, go to medical treatment, CBT, whatever whatever suits every, everybody. Everyone's different. We all recover differently. But that's what it was about. It was about, it was about more about hope. And then one, once I had that relationship built um, with my faith, I joined the first workshop, not workshop, I suppose, talk stroke workshop that we ever done red car that we ever done once we incorporated was 2015 at, at my local church because someone said oh why don't you do your local church so i went down to see the local church st george's and enfield met father tayman book had come out and everything he was amazed by the story and just said look we love this uh why don't you have the hall for free we'll uh, we'll give you a donation um and i thought wow this is amazing this this is just meant to be and then we did the first one there and that became my my uh, place of worship every Sunday until um, 2017, when I got baptised in June, June the 7th, 2017. So that's what I mean about the progression of regaining my faith has just really, really helped me and made me feel not not just not just address my gambling, address my problems, and, and strive to be you know um, gambling free and debt free, which I became debt free, but also just as an individual, as a, as a person as well. I, I, and people used to say to me over the last five or six years, you know, they they can see the change. Oh, God, Johnny, you're a different person, all that, because I was a bit wild, I was a bit this, a bit that, not very caring, all these different things. But it does, from in my personal opinion, I know I respect everyone's faith and, and beliefs and all that. Everyone's got their own way and everyone's got their own beliefs and religions. But, you know, since I've been baptised and since I've regained the faith and built that relationship with, with God, in my opinion, it's, it's helped me in my recovery journey. It makes me feel so comfortable there's doors will always open i'll always be looked after red car will always be looked after what the biggest achievement for me scott is apart from you know uh, recovering from the gamma addiction and all that stuff um you know apart from being a professional footballer you know it's fine i got my boyhood dream which is brilliant but being debt free because when i look back at those and i've still got my bankruptcy file uh, because we used to take it to workshops and, and talk about how how serious financial harm is, and when I look at those, I was looking at like with the misses the other day about you know the repossessions of the houses and the credit cards and the, the bank loans and the pawnbrokers and the things was like wow, I never thought in a million years that I would be debt free. So that's that's huge, and I, I'd obviously uh, run an organisation for nine years. So yeah, I think that's I never thought I'd be able to get to that position. And can you please tell me about obviously your organization that you're running just now, Tony? Because obviously, I imagine it's helped a lot of people with their gambling addictions. So, can you tell me a bit about it? Yeah, we decided in 2015, we decided, you know, we wanted to go down the education awareness route. Um, yeah, there's treatment providers out there, you know, GamCare, Gamble Aware. We've done some work with Scottish Gambling Education Network as well. Fast forward. So, we've done some work with them. Um, and yeah, so because my sort of belief, uh, and 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 the red card mission is about you know the next generation. It's about young people, 
Um, we, the times we live in now in terms of young people wanting everything now, it's about status, about image, it's about money. So we said to ourselves, well, I said to myself, uh, that if we can educate young people from 11 years old upwards and, and give them uh, the tools to understand what gambling addiction looks like and feels like, uh, to make sure they're educated in, in terms of you know, everything, all aspects of problem gambling and gambling harms, then at least we can say to ourselves, when they get to 16, 17, 18 in college and university, you know, they will have been aware of what gambling addiction is and what it looks like, and they will have their own choices to make. Because at the end of the day, you know, we all have to make our own choices. So, you know, if we can do that, that's what, that's the route we decided to go down. So we've we've been to about, I think it's over 75 schools now, um, secondary schools across the country, and obviously lots of other youth projects. We've, we're on a halfway through um, a two-year project, which is non-league football, which is close to my heart. So, you know, we've done some research on the non-league scene because we're aware that the professional football um sector is a little bit closed off and don't really want to expose it too much so but in non-league football there's all the players obviously like i said train on tuesday thursday night and, and there's lots of young players that are gambling on their apps and training in the bar afterwards etc so yeah we've done 22 clubs at the moment so we've got another year to go with that um and then obviously we do cpd training for professionals because at the end of the day everybody and anybody regardless of what sector your age your background your status your ethnicity Regards, everybody's getting involved in gambling and getting uh, problems with gambling. Hey, do you think the English FA is taking footballers who have a gambling addiction seriously enough? Because obviously they they like to give out heavy punishments. Like for example, Ivan Tony, he got a lengthy mm-hmm. bag for gambling. But then you can look at the other side, where it's Luis Suarez, he got a nine game ban for racism. So, and for me, it just doesn't really add up. Where they also promote gambling companies as sponsors. But yeah. they'll punish players who put on a coupon. So, do you think the FA are taking uh, get, like players with gambling addictions uh, seriously enough? No, nowhere near as serious as, as, as they should be. We've had meetings with the PFA. We've had meetings with the FA. Um, and what we've found, you know, for an, an example, would be the fact that you 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 now here have a uh, an ex player, uh, which which makes me a PFA member. You know that. You can employ this person or help Red Card go into the 92 football clubs, educate the scholars, etc. But there was a reluctance to work with us, and that really surprised me. Um, and I know through working at Tottenham's new training ground um, for two years as a liaison officer, this is back in 2012. Um, and so I'm fully aware, this is 10 years, 10, 12 years ago, and I'm fully aware of the amount of gambling going on professional football. You know, I was talking to, you know, Les Ferdinand and Tim Sherwood, who were in the under-23s, um, telling me about how rife it is within that club. Uh, can't mention names, but yeah, so, but that'll be that'll be across the board of all 92 football leagues. We're in this gambling culture of professional football and, and, and gambling. It's, it's there, it's happening every single day. Um, and I just think that, you know, now and again, like the other day, with Ivan Tony and the guy from Newcastle, um, and I think there's been another recent one as well. Now and again, you'll get someone that will eventually come out, uh, whether he's whether he's been urged to do that or whether he's breached the FA rules, whatever whatever way it is, he'll come out, and that's the only time you'll hear about it. But there'll there'll be hundreds and hundreds of players up and down the country as we speak that are struggling with gambling. So yeah, there has to be a lot more done within that space, and that's why we decided to. Um, you know, going to the the, the non league circuit. 
Yeah, do you think the FA will ever get rid of these gambling sponsors? Because like, if it, yeah, I, well, just, I just don't understand it. Where yeah. any, they like to give out lengthy punishments, but the thing is, mm. they promote Paddy Power, Ladbrokes, like no yeah. control. It's very, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think the correlation between, you know, professional football and, and, and gambling operators is, has grown, obviously, over the last few years. Uh, we've got to a point now where I'm not sure what it's like in Scotland, but. You know the the front of shirt advertising. That's the change in legislation uh, in terms of regulation with with professional football clubs. That is a change that's going to happen in 2025-26 season. Where, but it's not a massive change because it's it's going to be the banning of of uh, gambling companies sponsoring Premier League clubs front of shirt sponsorship, but they can have it on their sleeve. So it's not a complete change, which doesn't really really go far enough. To be fair, um, and we have to understand the next generation that you know, millions and millions of kids across the country that are going to football and being exposed to gambling. You know, these players are their idols um, and these are, you know, these are players that they're looking up to. But yeah, the gambling advertising around the, you know, the perimeter fencing, it's just everywhere. So that, that relationship between professional football and gambling is something that's obviously detrimental to young people in terms of exposing young people to gambling. So I'm hoping that, you know, they'll go further and just ban, you know, every single football club from, you know, gambling sponsorship. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, I've worked in football, you know, I know bits about how football clubs are run. And it's not the it's not the biggest revenue for a professional. A Premier League club, you know, does not need a gambling sponsor. It's as simple as that. They don't need one to survive. All football clubs have always survived with sponsorship and they always will. So um, I don't really see the need for it to be honest yeah and and that and i and i don't mind you know as general gambling advertising on our tv screens or whatever whatever it is i think that's part of business i think that you know the gambling industry is a huge business um so they have the right to market something or, or, or to advertise something but um in terms of the general advertising that we see on our tv screens and the press on our airways and everywhere else i think what needs to change there is the content and the language and the imagery that actually needs to change because we were talking as lived that lived experience team about why do we always every single advert is geared to encouraging people to gamble it's telling you that everybody wins and that everybody's happy that's what it's telling you when you look at these adverts but will we ever see you know a parent standing over some grave side will we ever see someone just coming out of jail because of committed crime for gambling will we ever see those kind of images Will we have stronger, safer gambling messages that tell you, you know, really what could be happening, uh, what could happen to you in terms of if you if gambling becomes a problem? The, the little phrases of stop and time to think and stop when the fun stops and all these things, they mean absolutely nothing. So stronger, safer gambling messages I'd love to see in the next couple of years. Mm. And uh, Tony, can you tell me about the second book, second book that you brought out in 2021? Yes. That you can win. So tell me about that. And where can p- uh, people find it? Sorry to leave the screen. I bet you can win with something that because the, the red card, the first book came obviously it was the first book, 2014. But red card gambling sport project, all the stuff that I've done in terms of media workshops, red card, the organization, everything in the last eight, nine, ten years wasn't born. So I didn't know what I was going to do. So when the book finished in 2014, people said to me, you know, a couple of years later when we settled red card, and then people were saying, All oh, right, so. Oh, now, now you're a CEO. Now you're running an organisation. Now you're going around the country educating people. Now you're doing personal talks. Now you're doing all this. So people said, "Oh, but no one knows about it." 
you know, no one knows what happened to your life after 2014. So I thought, yeah, you're right, actually. So 2021, we decided to to call it a sequel to Red Card, I Bet You Can Win. Uh, and that came out um, 2021, and that's basically takes you into 2000, I think, in 2023. Yeah, that's uh, takes you to the, you know, the the full full circle, basically, in terms of where I am today and how I set a red card and the people I've met and the things that we've done and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's a continuation of the journey, but, you know, on the real, real positive side in terms of where I am today. So, yeah, red card, I bet you can win. That's available on Amazons and Waterstones and normal outlets. Uh, WXP, et cetera, et cetera, and also on the on the red card website. And it, Tony, see people out there just now who are, who will be listening to this, who are struggling with a gambling addiction. What would you say to them right now? I think the biggest thing for me when I, when I look back at my my own journey is that I I wish you know I'd have spoken to someone at an early stage. Um, and and obviously when you're going through a gambling problem people around you will will know so people will give you advice people will tell you your friends will say you, my brothers and sisters um and my mum and dad always you say be careful with your gambling you know i borrowed money off every single member of my family fortunately for me they stayed with me but not everybody you know is lucky enough to that that happens um but they stayed with me so you know i'd say that you'd ha- try your hardest when you when it becomes a problem and on a daily basis if you're accumulating debt, uh, you start to get a few CCJs or defaults and you know you're falling behind with debt, then before it spirals completely out of control, it might be affecting relationship, might be affecting relationship with your kids, then just speak to someone ASAP because at least you'll be able to get out of it and get some help and get some support because the longer you leave it, the deeper it gets and, and the bigger those debts will become and the more damage you do to the relationships and, and health-wise, you start suffering health issues so yeah, my advice would be as hard as it is, and I do understand how hard it is because I've been there. I do understand how hard it is, but that would be the biggest advice: just make sure you talk to someone and get support as quick as can before you go down that uh, road where it spirals out of control completely. Yeah, and Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem, Scott. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the show. If you want to listen to more episodes of Scott Score, they're available on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Until next time, take care and we'll see you soon.